0: Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website, celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture and its impact on the world today. The Low Countries have long held mystery and intrigue for people all around the world. Over thousands of years, Innumerable myths and legends have sprung out of this small corner of Europe, while many more have been created by bemused foreigners looking in from the outside. There is a unique quality to this busy little misty swampland that has long allowed imaginations to run wild and fantasy to be embraced in the forms of stories, songs, jokes, and activities. In this episode of The Low Countries Radio... We are going to explore some of the folk tales from the Low Countries, as such we will encounter giants, magical horses, elven knights, and yes, even a boy putting his finger in a dike to prevent a flood. So, let's go live in fantasy and wind our way through the deep, dark forest where myths and legends lay, lurking in the shadows, waiting for us. We humans are storytelling apes. It is through our use of narrative and the construction of stories that we have long passed on our knowledge, beliefs, ideas and values to one another and to the next generations. As such, ancient myths and legends were often constructed as a means of explaining something that otherwise might have remained inexplicable. If you were wandering around several thousand years ago, and didn't know anything about plate tectonics, modern geology and geography, the only satisfying way to explain the origin of things such as volcanoes, forests and lakes, would have been to make a really gripping story about them. Before the arrival of Christianity in the Low Countries in the 4th century, the different tribes of Celtic and Germanic people here were pagan. The deities and spirits that they worshipped varied from group to group, but... Insofar as the Germanic belief systems went, there was a distinctly general flavour that was similar to Nordic paganism. Gods like Woden and Donar were, essentially, Odin and Thor of Norse fame, and they often played roles in the myths and legends that developed. In 1909, a man named Gustav von der Waal Perenay published a book called Veluske Sagen, the Sagas of the Vailua The Velua is a forested region in the province of Gelderland. Van de had grown up there and decided to compile a collection of folk stories which he had heard as a child about the area. It is in this book that we can find a tale about the creation of two specific lakes, which are only a couple of hundred meters from each other in the Vailua. They are called the Udalamir and the Blekemir. In a country filled with lakes, what makes these two stand out is that they are at a really high altitude. The Oudelamere is a whopping 24 meters above sea level, and the Blakemere only a few meters lower. For the Netherlands, that's basically like the Himalayas. With the benefit of being in the 21st century, we have a good scientific understanding now of how these lakes were created. But first, let's get into the creation story, brought to us over thousands of years, an epic tale of gods, giants, and really big snakes, as related by Fundeval Pernay. Quote. Already autumn mists fluttered over the forests, like grey veins of the approaching winter army and great cloud wolves wrestled with the sun god, Donar growled furiously in his red beard so that the giants fainted for a while. The herons and the swallows, terrified and frightened by the incipient battle, fled on swift wings southward. The winter giants gathered in the forest, and there enlisted the aid of a great monster serpent, whose deadly breath discoloured and withered the leaves of the trees. Where it had crawled, poisonous fungi arose. In that forest of bright red and poisonous yellow, the giants made an alliance with the serpent. The trees were so moved by this terrible treaty that they shed many leaves. The next day, the serpent curled around the highest oak tree to vomit its venom into the sky, and the giants threw hail with hands full. From all sides, Donar now gathered his great cloud masses to block the entrance. From far over the endless cloud fields, he himself came riding in his wildly rolling chariot, strung behind two black goats. His beard flapped in the wind like a red flag, and the goats whipped sparks from the pavement with their hooves. The whole sky was on fire, and the sound of hammer blows made the earth shake there the serpent lifted her huge jaws wide open through the clouds and blew her stinking breath into the blue vault of the sky which suddenly turned black then donna raised the never missing thunder sledgehammer and struck it down with lightning on the serpent's head with such force that the giant monster fell shattered to the ground and the sledgehammer plunged seven more miles into the trembling earth The tall oak creaked and plunged into the depths with its burden. From the scorching fire of lightning rose a vile stench of the scorching poison. Its dirty brown clouds surrounded the golden head of the Thunder God. He staggered in his chariot and dizzily fell backwards. With a terrible blow, he crashed from heaven to the ground, near the spot where he had crushed the serpent. It was as if the universe was torn apart and the world was torn from its seams, his empty wagon, behind the runaway driverless goats, roared furiously along the cloud road, crashing at last, on Donderberg, Donderberg being Thunder Mountain, then there was silence, and the earth sank into the sea, Far over the fields of surging waters, the night descended and towering waves billowed their foam tops. The sea god blew his horn and came sailing across the wide waters in his great dark ship. He took the dead Donna with him. Now a fleet of icebergs from the white winter giants came driven from the north and made the godship flee from the waters. Many sad times passed, during which the immense winter giant reigned supreme after the earth had dried up again two lakes were left behind which are as deep as the world and the one was called the Utilok the Utilomir and the other the lake of the gods or white lake Blakomir and the place where the goats fell was called Dirin which means animals. End quote. What a tale. It is so fascinating to think of how certain elements of stories such as this might have represented actual events. Were the winter giants representative of a lingering cultural memory of the last ice age? Perhaps the poisonous venom of the giant snake shooting into the sky was a way of multiple generations conveying the experience of some volcanic event that blackened the sky. We will never know. However, what we do know is that all of these elements served to tell people hearing this story of how those two lakes in the Velua came into existence. Today, much to the chagrin of some, we have science. The scientific explanation about these lakes is that they are in fact. Pingo Ruins. Pingos are a special type of hill created when groundwater in an area of permafrost freezes. The ice expands, which in turn drives the land above it upwards. Since the ice age ended, the land thawed and the hills collapse into themselves, leaving these elevated, crater-like features, which have since filled with water. Boring definitely more fun to think about them as holes left behind after a great battle in the sky between Thor on his flying goat-powered chariot and a giant venomous snake. Legendary origin stories are not just limited to geographical features but can also be found in the myths about the establishment of towns and cities. Amsterdam was supposedly founded by a Norwegian prince, a knight, and a seasick dog, who founded a settlement when their ship ran aground after they had unsuccessfully attempted to Christianize the Frisians and were caught in a harrowing storm. If you ever get a chance to look at the royal palace in Amsterdam's central square, de on top of the highest wind vane, is a small golden depiction of the two men and the dog on a boat. The village of Kinderdike, today famous for its 19 windmills, is built on the location where a baby and cat were supposedly found floating in a cradle after the St. Elizabeth's flood of 1421, hence the name Child's Dyke. The origin myth, however, which we would really like to focus on, is that which is behind the name of the city of Antwerp, a story that includes the famous Skelt River, a violent giant, and a righteous Roman. Being based on the river Scheldt. the place which is now Antwerp was a small trading post whereby many ships would need to pass in order to take their goods to and from market. Perhaps this is what attracted the evil giant, Druon Antigone to the burgeoning village. He immediately began a reign of terror, quickly subduing the townsfolk to his will by force of violence, exploiting his immense physical size and capacity for cruelty. It is said that just by raising his arms, people would lose consciousness, on account of him having terrible body odour. Before long, he and his stinky armpits had taken over the village and the fort on the river that guarded the shipping entrance into the port. From there, he began to enact a hefty toll, demanding half of all goods carried by any ship coming into his domain. If any captain should refuse, Antigoon would leap onto the ship and beat him to a pulp. Then, as punishment for the defiance and disobedience, and as a warning to any others that may think of doing the same, he would cut off one of the poor skipper's hands and throw it into the Scheldt. Before long, it became perilous and non-profitable to use the village's port, and the suffering of the townsfolk grew even worse, unable to make any money, and living under heavy, smelly oppression. Word began to spread across the region, and details of Antigone's cruelty reached the ears of one Silvius Brabo, a brave Roman centurion who, according to some, was a nephew of Julius Caesar himself, and therefore also descended from the gods. Bravo could not bear the thought of such oppression being enacted on innocent people. He decided he must be the one to banish or kill Antigone. First, Brabo visited an oracle to ask where he could find the giant. The oracle told him to let a swan be his guide. One might think that Brabo would have asked how to kill the giant rather than just find him, but that was not Bravo's way. Lo and behold, when he set off from his town, armed and on horseback, a swan swooped down and landed in front of him and began to guide him with a prescient and knowing waddle. For days and weeks they travelled, the swan leading Bravo and his horse, until they came to the river Skeld and kept following it towards the sea. Eventually, Bravo could sense they were getting close because he began to smell Antigoon's stinky armpits. The Roman centurion sauntered into the village, to the gates of the fortress which Antigoon had taken over. The giant was kicking back with his feet up, picking his teeth with a bone from some long dead animal. "'Who goes there?' he demanded, seeing Bravo approach. Bravo dramatically swung his leg over and hopped down from his horse. "'I am Bravo,' he told the giant." And I am here to tell you to leave this place and leave these people in peace. Antigone could not believe the temerity of this tiny creature telling him to leave. He leaped up and Brabo quickly unsheathed his sword. The two began to fight, Antigone enjoying the advantage of his significant size while Brabo enjoyed the advantage of being descended from gods who played their part by plugging up his nose and pulling him from the brink of death several times as he fought on and on and on. A day passed, and then another, and the two kept fighting. By the third day, they were both exhausted, and it was only a matter of hours before one of them took a fatal step. Luckily for Team Bravo, it was the giant who made the mistake, swinging a giant fist and missing his nemesis, toppling over in exhaustion. Bravo, summoning what little strength remained in his arms, swung his sword and dealt a death strike to the giant's throat. Then, in morbid victory, he cut off Antigoon's hand, just as the giant had done to so many unfortunate seafarers, and threw it into the Scheldt. Thus, the burgeoning village was saved and able to grow quickly into the flourishing trade metropolis that would eventually come to straddle the world of European commerce. It is said that the name Antwerp, in Dutch Antwerpen, comes from Handwerpen, meaning to throw a hand. That is a nice story. It's completely fictional, but hey, that's what myths are about. Whereas pagan beliefs long invested spiritual meaning into plants and animals and mythical beings, with the introduction of Christianity, a new overarching belief structure slowly began to incorporate many of these elements and repurpose them within that new framework. Christianity was first brought into the Low Countries in the 4th century, but it would be over 500 years before it had become the established and omnipresent religion that would come to define the Middle Ages. That period saw the rise of the Salient Franks, who originated from somewhere between Flanders and Zeeland, but who, by the 8th century, had created a capital called Paris, and consolidated most of the different Frankish groups under the royal leadership of the Merovingian dynasty. The second of these kings... Glodic was largely responsible for this growth and was also the first one of them to convert to Christianity. The conversion of Northern European paganism to Christianity was not a matter of just replacing one belief system with another, rather it was that Christian characters and concepts were absorbed and incorporated over centuries into the ancient stories, legends and myths that had long permeated through the forests and swamplands of Western Europe. One example of this is a poem called Carl en de Elgast, or Charles and Elgast. Variations of this story would have been long told in the oral tradition. The oldest text version, however, which survives, was written in the Middle Dutch language sometime around 1270 in either Brabant or Flanders. The poem is centered around two main characters: Charlemagne, the Frankish king who united most of Western Europe under his banner with his capital at Aachen, and Elahast, a childhood friend of Charlemagne, who had become a great knight, only to then be banished from the court in disgrace after some kind of infraction, going off to live as an outcast in the forest. The thing about Elahast is that his name implies that he was elven, and he even has magical powers in the stories, that are more reminiscent of the nature-based pagan belief system than of the monotheistic Christianity which had become establishment. Elikhas could open locked doors, he was able to talk to animals, and was also a bit of a Robin Hood type figure, stealing from the rich to give to the poor. So in this story, Charlemagne has a dream in which an angel appears before him, acting as a messenger from the Christian god, commanding him to go out and perform robbery. This seems like a pretty out-of-character directive, all things considered, but Charlemagne, being a good Christian, decides to do what God says. He ventures out into the forest in disguise, and runs into his old friend Elikas, who does not recognize him. Charlemagne suggests that they've robbed the king, which is him, and Elikas, still unaware that he is talking to Charlemagne, proves his loyalty to Charlemagne by refusing. Instead, Elchas suggests they rob Egaric, a high noble who is married to Charlemagne's sister. When they break into Egaric's castle, they hear him plotting to kill Charlemagne. The next day, Charlemagne and Elchas confront Egaric at the court, and they prove his treachery. He is promptly executed, and Elchas is released from his disgrace and banishment, and gets to marry Charlemagne's now widowed sister. In this 13th century Low Countries poem, we can see how what was probably originally a pagan story, with its elven hero living in a dark and sacred forest, was spruced up with Christian elements to create a powerful moral. If Charlemagne had not been obedient to God and his commandment, he would never have come to realise how good a friend Elikhas truly was, and more importantly, would probably have fallen victim to Egerich's plot to kill him. Some scholars argue that Karel and Elchas is actually a derivative of another legend, Les Quatre fils Amon, in English, the Four Sons of Amon, or in Dutch, Fier Heemskinderen. This story, too, has many different versions, but the one we are concerned with is intimately connected with the town of Dendermonde in Flanders. The story is centred around the four sons of Duke Amon of Dordogne, a fictional town in the Ardennes. He is also, coincidentally, married to Charlemagne's sister. After kicking butt in a nightly tournament in Paris, the eldest of Duke Amon's sons is rewarded by Charlemagne with a magical horse- named Bayard. After this, that same son gets into an argument over a game of chess with Charlemagne's son, and in a move which I'm pretty sure is forbidden by the rules of chess, kills him. The four brothers together then flee on the back of Bayard, which, being magical, is able to carry all of them together to safety. A bunch more stuff happens, but basically at the end of the story, the four sons of Aemon are able to reach peace with Charlemagne, but in exchange, they must surrender the horse back to him. Charlemagne then has a bunch of millstones tied around the horse's neck and throws it in a river. The end. So, what does this have to do with Dendermonde? Well, in the Flemish version of the story, Aemon is the lord of Dendermonde, one of the smaller towns on the Skelt River. In this version, Lord Aemon gifts his son's horses, but after the eldest son, Reinault, proves himself to be too strong and powerful for any regular horse, he takes him to Bayard, a horse that is so terrifying that it has been locked in a fortress, unable to be broken in by any other person. After an epic tussle between man and horse, Bayard accepts Reynaut as his rider. The Flemish version continues on in much the same way as the other story, with Renaud decapitating Charlemagne's son after a game of chess, but in this retelling, after they flee from France with the help of a wizard, the horse jumps over the Mars River at Dinant with the four brothers on its back in a single bound. That's a pretty magical horse. In this retelling, Bayard meets a similar end. However, he is thrown into the Dendermonding, Monding, the place where the Dender River flows into the Scheldt. The story of what is now known as the Ross Bayard is still celebrated in Dendermonde to this day. Every ten years, a triumphal procession is held in the town in which a giant horse with four brothers dressed up in costume as the four sons of Amon are paraded throughout the town. The horse is huge, more than five meters long and almost five meters tall. It's made of oak and weighs over 800 kilograms, without anybody sitting on its back. The only people allowed to move the horse are members of a special guild called the binders who were originally responsible for offloading boats and cellaring crates of beer and wine. And when I said that four brothers sit on the back of the horse in this parade, I literally mean four brothers. There are strict criteria set forth about who exactly qualifies for the honour of portraying the Fear Heemskinderen. They must be four brothers, with no sisters in between, they must be aged between seven and twenty-one, and they have to have been born in, and still live in, Dendermonde. The first mention of the Ross Bayard Parade in Dendermonde's city finances dates from 1460-61. It is therefore recognized by UNESCO as part of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity. As with the horse in the Four Sons of Amon story, animals are central elements of other localised myths and legends. For instance, it is said that there must always be more than 52 swans in Bruges. The reason for this goes back to an event that took place in 1488. As an aside, if you are a listener of our regular podcast, The History of the Netherlands, then it is worth giving a heads up here, by pure coincidence. The story we are about to tell relates a particular event that we are going to go right into in episode 41, which will be released shortly after this. So, spoiler alert. After the death of Mary the Duchess of Burgundy in 1482, Flanders found itself split into factions over the question of who should rule the county while the new Count, Philip, was still a child. One candidate was Mary's husband, Maximilian of Habsburg, while another was a regency council composed of various members of the aristocracy and powerful figures from the rich cities of Bruges, Ghent, and Ypres. After negotiations between the parties failed to find a tolerable solution, open warfare broke out, and in 1485, Maximilian and his armies crushed the rebellion against him, inflicting heavy punishment, particularly on Ghent, but although the flames of rebellion had been doused, the embers lived on. Over the next few years, Maximilian raised taxes in Flanders heavily in order to pay for yet another unpopular, costly, and disastrous war against France. When Ghent went into open revolt against him once more in late 1487, Maximilian began negotiation with them from Bruges. But when the guilds of Bruges decided that Actually, they also weren't particularly satisfied with what was going on. They spectacularly imprisoned Maximilian and his main representative in the city, the scout or sheriff, Peter Lanchals. Lanchals was hated within Bruges for his propensity to rule with extreme violence as was fashion at the time after a hasty show trial. Lanchals' head was deprived of its attachment to his neck on the main market square in Bruges, in full view of the horrified and imprisoned Maximilian. In the interest of not wanting to spoil too much of the story for our next regular episode, let us just say that when this second Flemish revolt against him was finally crushed, Maximilian once again found himself doling out punishments. According to the local legend in Bruges, Maximilian, in a fit of poetic vengefulness, decided that the city should forever be haunted by visual reminders of its betrayal against him, by requiring them to keep swans on the canals forevermore. In Dutch, Lanchals, the name of the guy who was decapitated, means long neck, something swans are intimately familiar with, and the lanchals coat of arms featured a swan. Various versions of this story circulate, with some saying the Pruges must keep at least 50 swans, others saying the least 100. To this day, however, swans remain one of the most important symbols of the city, even lending their form to the city's official chocolate, Het Brugse Svanche, the Bruges swan. Another quick example of the way that animals and towns connect to each other through legend is in another famous old Flemish city, Ypres, and it's cats. In the Middle Ages, a rather bizarre tradition developed in Ipa, whereby on the second Sunday of May each year, cats would be thrown off the top of the belfry. According to the local folklore, cats were connected to witchcraft, so killing them was a way of warding off evil spirits who might have been lurking in the town. Another idea for the origin of this festival connects it to Ipa's thriving cloth trade. The great cloth holes where the valuable goods were stored attracted many mice who would eat and damage the product. As such, cats were released as a means of rodent control. When they discovered that now they instead had a cat problem, instead of repeating the vicious cycle and releasing dogs into the holes to eat the cats, they did the next most obvious thing, and began hurling unfortunate felines off the top of the hole's tall tower. Whatever the case may be, As to the truth behind the legend, the last live cat to be thrown on record was in 1817. When the tradition was brought back in the 1930s, they decided to substitute real cats with toy ones and follow it up with a good old fashioned mock witch burning. Ipa, what a town, not good for cats. Arguably the most famous and enduring myth to emerge out of the Dutch Republic of the 17th and 18th centuries is that of the Flying Dutchman. According to this story, there is a Dutch ship and her captain, cursed by the devil, fated to endlessly sail the sea, never able to make port. Wagner created an opera around it, and versions of the story have been retold countless times in music, literature, poetry, visual artworks, theatre, and on screen. The story, as detailed by Wagner, centers on a sea captain, the Flying Dutchman, who is struggling and failing to bring his ship around the torridly stormy Cape of Good Hope. He swears to persevere if it takes him until the Day of Judgment. Meanwhile, the devil has been all over this, and hearing the oath professed from the Flying Dutchman's mouth, decided to hold him to account. He curses the mariner, dooming him to be forever stuck at sea, unable to come into port, the exception being that every seven years, he would be able to make landfall and search for a woman who will be his one true love and whose love will release him from the curse. After innumerable years of floating around the world and countless failed attempts to seek out the woman who would save him, the Flying Dutchman sails on. As the Flying Dutchman heads into a port, on a one-in-seven-year attempt to find his true love, he comes across a Norwegian ship, captained by a man called Daland. Daland, as it so happens, has a daughter called Senta, who is back in his house not far from the port. Senta, coincidentally, is obsessed with the story of the Flying Dutchman, and convinced that she is destined to be the woman who will bring him salvation from his otherwise endless condemnation. This is much to the chagrin of another man who is desperately courting her, called Eric. Eric is an unsavoury character, jealous and mean. When her father encounters the Flying Dutchman's ship, Daland tells the doomed captain about Santa, and so he goes off to meet her. Upon meeting, they quickly declare their love for each other, and she promises to be the woman who will save him. They set off for the ship, but while still ashore, Eric comes to Santa and begs that she reconsider and declare her love for him instead of this random, cursed, and eternally old Dutchman. She refuses. And so Eric gets angry, and he starts throwing around accusations. But while this conversation is taking place, the Flying Dutchman is actually eavesdropping, and at some point, he gets the idea that Santa is going to stay on shore with Eric. So he leaves for his ship, and gets ready to set sail without her. But when Santa learns this, she rushes out to the ship to try to stop him, but everyone around her manages to restrain her. As the Flying Dutchman begins to depart, however, she gets out of their hold, and climbs up onto another ship, declaring that she would be true to the Dutchman until her death. She decides to make this a not very long-term commitment, and jumps off, killing herself immediately. This act of love, Releases the Flying Dutchman from his curse. He and his ship dissipate into nothingness, and he is free. So that's one version of the story, but in reality, the Flying Dutchman is a myth and legend that has long been lingering in the minds of seafarers around the world. Reported sightings of a ghostly ship in the distance have upheld the idea of the mythical ship going back into the 19th century. On July 11th, 1881, George, the Prince of Wales, the future King of England, George V, was sailing on a ship off the east coast of Australia with the Royal Navy when he claimed to have seen the ghostly ship. He wrote, At 4am, the Flying Dutchman crossed our bows, a strange red light as of a phantom ship all aglow, in the midst of which light the masts, spars, and sails of a brig 200 yards distant stood out in a strong relief as she came up on the port bow where also the officer of the watch from the bridge clearly saw her, as did the quarterdeck midshipman, who was sent forward at once to the forecastle. But on arriving, there was no vestige, nor any sign, whatever, of any material ship was to be seen, either near or right away to the horizon, the night being clear and the sea calm. There have been numerous attempts to explain the appearance of a ghost ship through science, One of the most likely theories is that those who have seen the Flying Dutchman have in fact been experiencing an optical illusion known as a Fata Morgana. A Fata Morgana occurs when a layer of warm air becomes trapped underneath a layer of cold air and creates something known as an atmospheric duct. When light from faraway objects passes through this, it is bent in such a way that air acts like a lens and completely distorts the faraway object for the viewer. This effect can manifest itself in various ways, such as the object appearing to shimmer and shift or even float in the air. Given the right conditions, a Fata Morgana can even make an object which is beyond the horizon become visible. So perhaps the mythical tale of a Dutch ship cursed for eternity to sail the seas traces back to a lonely, superstitious sailor who saw a Fata Morgana and, like we have already seen with so many other myths, created the story of the Flying Dutchman as a way to try and explain something which to the best of his knowledge was beyond explanation. Often, events based in reality, such as the creation of the lakes in the Velower, turn into myth and legend. Sometimes, however, myth and legends can themselves transform into reality, or at least inspire real events. Such is the case with the myth of the bocken Riders, which really picked up steam in Limburg, Lone, and the Overmass during the 18th century. The bocken Riders, meaning Buck Riders, is an ancient myth that exists across France, Germany, and the Low Countries about demons who ride through the sky on big, black, ferocious goats. If you're thinking... These are not the first flying goats we have encountered on this mythological meander, then you are correct. These characters riding goats, however, were of a particularly demonic bent, loyal to Satan. It is said that as they flew menacingly through the sky above, one could hear their voices ringing, over house, over town, over stark, and at tot colon in divine keldur, meaning over house, over garden, over stake, and even across to Cologne, to the wine cellar. In addition to this, they would all descend yearly upon a forest near Nijmegen called Mokerheide, where Lucifer himself would host them. It's terrifying stuff. This myth, however, became even more terrifying for people mainly in and around the towns of Maastricht, Aachen, Hulik, and Ruramond during three periods that occurred between 1730 and 1730 and 1774. Armed bandits, who had also raided under other creative names, such as Lieden van der Beruchte Bänder, members of the infamous gang, and also other not-so-creative names, like the Rogues, began propagating the myth of the Bocken Raiders as they roamed around attacking farms, shops, and houses. Accusations included that they tortured their victims until they revealed whatever hidden wealth had been kept concealed from their assailants. But the main M.O. of the Bakken writers was to blackmail their target with a threatening letter demanding gold in return for remaining unassaulted. The first mention of these outlaws comes from a book written in 1779 by Dutch writer A. Daniels, who actually wrote under the pseudonym Sleonada, probably because somebody told him that spelling A. Daniels backwards would be cool. Oops, I went and created a myth. His book was given the catchy title, Orozaka, Beweis and Ondeckinger van een goddelose, Bezworne bende nachtieven and Kneflar's binnen de landen van Oefermaas en Anparlende Landstreek. Which, of course, is my terrible Dutch for causes, proof and discovery of a godless, averted gang of night thieves and gaggers within the lands of Oefermaas and adjacent regions. Daniels claimed to have known several of the thieves himself, so there's your proof. It is unclear why these men resorted to crime, but it is thought that the Buck Riders included many workers among their ranks, such as metal workers, saddle and shoemakers, wagon makers, and the like. Certainly, the aura that built up around them tended towards the hard working exploited man stealing from the rich. The first period went from 1730 to 1742, during which the buck riders assailed the region of the Ophramas. They sprung up again in 1750, before being crushed again, but then emerged a year later and continued to spread their demonic goat wings across that region of the Low Countries until 1774, meaning a quarter of a century, to build upon their mythology. They did quickly come onto the radar of local authorities, however, their activities coinciding with a period of Western European history in which witch hunting was quite in fashion. After all, the goat has long been mythologically linked to the Dark Prince. So arrests, imprisonment, trials, torture and executions mark the end of each of the three periods. After the final period, which ended in 1774, 27 Balkan riders were famously tried and executed in the town of Velen in Lone including a woman whose husband had apparently been one of the main Bokken riders and who had already been executed. The brutality of the punishment on such a local level is said to have had the effect that everybody in the city knew somebody who had been killed. This is said to have galvanized the town in a spirit that would continue into the 1780s and the 90s when the Enlightenment principles of the French Revolution would echo into the Low Countries in the form of a civil war that erupted. If this was, in fact, the case, then it can be argued that, in this whole Bokken affair, we can witness a legend, inspired by a legend, inspiring a legend. So, we are nearly at the end of this episode, which means it is time to talk about the myth that most foreigners today would associate with the Low Countries. The myth of the boy who plugged his finger in a dike to stop a flood. Although this image aptly symbolizes the struggle against rising waters in the Low Countries, it is, I am afraid, not actually from here at all. That's right. The Dutch folkloric tale that most people outside of the Low Countries would know about is not that widely known within the Low Countries themselves. It's not even a folk tale. Instead, hailing from the mind of American author Mary Mapes Dodge. Mapes Dodge became inspired to write about the Netherlands in the 1860s after reading the two seminal works of a man called John Lothrop Motley. They were The Rise of the Dutch Republic and History of the United Netherlands, which are both worth the read if you are looking for some exceptionally dramatic prose, even if a bit simplistic in the fashion so common to 19th century history writing. Anyway, without ever having actually been to the Netherlands, Mary Mapes Dodge wrote a book called Hans Brinko or The Silver Skates, which was first published in 1865. The story of the boy who saved the country by plugging a dike with his finger is not even what Hans Brinker is about, it's only a small side story within the book. The dike plugging lad remains unnamed, referred to only as the Hero of Haarlem. Although this story doesn't have origins in the Netherlands, there are today a fair few establishments in the country, such as hotels and hostels, that call themselves Hans Brinker. There are also three statues around the country. More a means of marketing to visitors from North America to whom the story is more familiar than anything to do with a local recognition or affiliation to it. It is, you could say, a mythical myth. And there is actually a Flemish slash Belgian equivalent to this example, a foreign story that is inspired by the region but has transformed into its own myth and legend for people outside the Low Countries. The story of Nello and Petrash comes from a book called A Dog of Flanders, which was written and published in 1872 by an English woman called Mary Louise Delarame, aka Ouida. The novel is about a young boy, called Nello, from the Ardennes in Belgium, who is very talented at drawing. His mother dies, and his poor grandfather, who lives in a village near Antwerp, takes him in when he becomes an orphan. Astute listeners may have noted that, despite the novel's name, a dog of Flanders, neither the Ardennes or Antwerp are, actually, in Flanders. Anyway, the grandfather and grandson struggle to make ends meet and to overcome the pervasive greed of their landlord. One day, Nello comes across a dog in the street, one which had been so badly abused and beaten that he was scarcely still alive. Yet, with care, love, and attention, Nello helps the dog to recuperate, giving him the name Patrasche. The two become inseparable from then on, even when Nello falls in love with Aloise, the daughter of a wealthy man in the nearest town, who is called Bass. Bass refuses to let his daughter become attached to a pauper of such meagre means, but then an opportunity arises which may allow Nello to elevate himself from his own poverty. A drawing competition in Antwerp, but with a grand prize of 200 francs per annum. Winning the competition, that could be such a happy ending for this story. But instead, Nello loses the competition, before things then go from bad to worse, he is wrongly blamed for a fire on Bas's property, told explicitly never to see Eloise again, his grandfather dies, and just as winter is bearing down upon everything, Nello and Petrache become homeless. They head back to Antwerp, ostensibly to see the masterworks by local painter Peter Paul Rubens, that hang in the cathedral there. They are, however. Refuse entry into the cathedral because they cannot pay the entrance fee. Christmas Eve arrives, and with absolutely nowhere to go or anybody caring about either of them, they return to the church and find that the doors have been left unlocked. So they go in to seek shelter from the elements and they lie down in front of the Rubens Triptych, the elevation of the cross. The next day, boy and dog are found locked together in a still, loving, but lifeless embrace, having both frozen to death overnight. Now, once we've all wiped the tears out of our eyes, this book had only moderate success in the UK and the US, nothing to really write home about, but it did become extremely popular in Japan, South Korea, and the Philippines, where it continues to inspire cartoons, movies, comic books, and more to this day. There was a Japanese anime series inspired by the story made in 1975 called Dog of Flanders, as well as a movie remake in 1997. Look up the Japanese language version on YouTube, The Dog of Flanders, and it's filled with comments about how it is the saddest anime movie of all time. As a result of the popularity of the TV series, however, by the late 1980s there were clearly a bunch of East Asian tourists in Antwerp who were far more interested in visiting the cathedral for Nello and Petrache than for the Rubens' paintings within. A small statue was put up in Hoboken, a former village and now suburb of Antwerp, that was designated the most likely place where Nello and his grandfather lived, in this fictional story that came from the mind of an Englishwoman. For a time, there was also a fake gravestone, written in English and Japanese, placed outside the Antwerp Cathedral. This was removed in 2016 and replaced by a large monument, a carved marble statue of Nello and Patrasse huddled together, lying under a blanket, which itself is formed from the cobblestoned street. That's right, metres away from the cultural highlight of Antwerp, the ancient cathedral with the masterpiece paintings inside, you can find people who are more interested in seeing the statue of a fictional boy and dog, which, and this is no joke, paid for by Toyota. The examples of the boy who plugged the dike with his finger in Hans Brinker, and of Nello and Petrash show how myths and legends develop and take on a life of their own. We have told a bunch of stories in this episode which range from vastly different time periods, and we cannot really know the context by which the stories were originally designed to be understood. That being said, the beautiful thing about stories is that they do not care about borders, or about which group of people tells them, listens to them, or takes meaning from them. The origins of stories can be completely different to the context in which the stories become popular, whether in a different era or on a different continent. All myths and legends need in order to survive is for somebody to tell them, and somebody to listen. So, dear listeners... Consider this your invitation to go forth and tell someone about the demonic goats which roam the sky in the Ophemas, or the hand-chopping giant who terrorized the Skelt region, or the vengeful Austrian prince who condemned a town to be reminded for eternity of its betrayal of him, in the form of beautiful, graceful, if slightly angry and aggressive swans. In doing this, you will be doing your part in helping to keep the folklore and mythology of the Low Countries living happily ever after. Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? Visit www.the-low-countries.com This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio.